Hello, everyone, and welcome to Witch Hassle. Thank you for joining us. I am your halfway intrepid host, Cooper Wilhelm, and I am pleased to bring you today the interview that I did with Aidan Walker, who is a talismanic jeweler and the author of Six Ways, Approaches, and Entries for Practical Magic. It was a great conversation, a very long conversation, where we talked about talismanic jewelry we talked about six ways we talked about a lot of magical techniques that you can give a go if you'd like to and we eventually found our ways to a kind of twisting at the intersection of desire and magic that felt somewhat laconian which was fun for me uh and in addition to being a wonderful exploratory interview it's also one that i conducted before coronavirus really hit the United States with any kind of serious oof. And so, you know, it's a it's a chance to revel in what is in hindsight a more innocent and pleasant time. Though, you know, quarantine's going fine for me, doing doing a fair amount of cooking. And uh, still working from home, though, so not doing as much reading as I would like. But enough about me. Though on that note, actually, here's your Witch Hassle Plague Magic Minute. So this is the Witch Hassle Plague Magic Minute, which is done as a service and will be for the rest of the year, where I give you a little bit of plague magic for you to sprinkle on top of all the very practical and empirically based things that you are doing in the face of the coronavirus. So, you know, of course, wash your hands, follow whatever health guidelines are current, maintain social distancing. But if you want to sprinkle a little plague magic on top as a spice, by all means, feel free to give these ago and we had a listener request for something from the early modern period and i'm not quite certain when that exactly gets going or when the the beginning mark is but i think this is well placed therein so here is something from 1671 from blagrave's astrological practice of physique discovering the true way to cure all kinds of diseases and infirmities which are naturally incident to the body of man being performed by such herbs and plants which grow within our own nation directing the way to distill and extract their virtues and making up of medicines also a discovery of some notable philosophical secret worthy our knowledge relating to a discovery of all kinds of evils whether natural or such which come from sorcery or witchcrafts or by being possessed by an evil spirit directing how to cast forth the said evil spirit out of any one which is possessed with sundry examples thereof by joseph blagrave of reading gentleman student in astrology and physique so um, a great source really worth checking out if you want to learn more about theories of how curses actually work and how they relate to the person who does the curse to the person being cursed and there's a little breakdown there on how witch bottles are supposed to actually function it might be one of the earliest written records of witch bottles that we have so really a great book worth looking into but in terms of plague and again we need to you know consider uh, whether or not these things are applicable to the coronavirus, especially because the coronavirus in some ways is is increasingly revealing itself to be other than we had previously thought. I think a lot of people thought this was a flu at first. Now it's turning out to be something more like a cold, uh, but always has been. But anyway, for fevers pestilential, our friend Joseph Blagrave recommends the following. Angelica, rue, saffron, bishop's weed, which is a bit hard to come by in terms of buying it. I think it's actually at sale. Bishop's weed is banned in several U.S. states, uh, but it's also a noxious weed, which means you could probably track it down just in the wild somewhere. Carnations, dragons, duck's meat, uh, fluellen, uh, which is actually, I believe, listed in the floral protection 
order of 1987 in Ireland, so that might be a tricky one for you to pick in public, maybe don't. Uh, Sorrel, Scabious, Wormwood, Sage, Burnet, and Violets. We also have here in Blagrave something that, again, like, don't recommend because it's animal cruelty, but, you know, worth considering at least from a historical standpoint because it does sort of link into a lot of the other forms of magic around sickness that we see that involve transferring the sickness to something else and casting that thing away. And this is something under the header of how to cure a plague sore and draw forth the venomous matter. And uh, Blagrave suggests take a living chick and apply the fundament of the chick onto the plague sore. It will draw forth the venom, kill the chick, and cure the patient. Also a dried toad macerated in vinegar and laid to the sore will draw forth the venomous matter and cure the patient. And this idea of something macerated in vinegar links into what we talked about in the last episode where, you know, vinegar is the classic sort of anti-plague substance. And to that end, we have something here from 1596, a, a short, short book called A Rich Storehouse or Treasury for the Diseased, wherein are many approved medicines for diverse and sundry diseases, which have been long hidden and not come to light before this time, now set forth for the great benefit and comfort of the poorer sort of people that are not of ability to go to the physicians by A.T., who is a practitioner in physique. And A.T. has this special preservative against the plague, and there are a few things in here where I don't know what they are. I've reached out to the world to see if anyone with, with access to the Oxford English Dictionary, to the Historic Dictionary, could tell me what these are. I don't know. If you figure out what, what treacle of lean or bolier moniac are, by all means, uh, reach out to the show or reach out to me at at witchhassle on Twitter, at witchhassle on Instagram. You can just email me if you want to. It's cooper.wilhelm at gmail dot com and of course always feel free to reach out to the show if you have any questions that you want me to try to research unfortunately my research has not turned up much good with these two words but you know at least here's an idea worth pursuing in form if not strictly in content take five spoonfuls of wine vinegar three spoonfuls of fair running water half a spoonful of treacle of lean and of Bolier ammoniac, as much as a small nut, being beaten to a powder, and drink this every morning and every evening. Also we have, from that same source, take six leaves of sorrel and wash them with water and vinegar, and let them lie to steep in the said water and vinegar a good while, then eat them fasting, and keep in your mouth, and chew now or then either stool, or the root of angelica, or a little cinnamon, for any of these is marvelous good. And finally, from that source, we have an excellent good drink to be taken every morning for a preservative against the plague and to avoid infection. Take a handful of winter savory and boil the same in a quart of good wine vinegar with a spoonful of grains being very fine beaten and put into the same, then put into it a quantity of fine sugar and so drink a good draught thereof every morning fasting. When you must, of necessity, come into any place where any infectious persons are, it is good for you to smell to the root of angelica, gentian, or valerian, and to chew any of these in your mouth. Uh, so, you know, a lot, of, uh, a lot of suggestions there. Once again, always research these things before you actually 
a dolphin to see if there are things that you might have an allergic reaction to or might be poisonous in some way. But, you know, worth considering. We also have from a slightly earlier source, the Higromantia, this admonition regarding sickness and so on. Under the header, concerning the herb of the moon, it is called peony. When you want to uproot it, recite the following prayer. Asfa, Adonai, Doi de Saba, who makes people poor or rich and elevated, who punishes and heals again, who destroys and vivifies. Lord, God of hosts, look upon this herb so that I will uproot it in your holy name and use it for healing and for every beneficial purpose. Praised be your name forever. Amen. And this is the prayer of peony, and you're to recite it three times and then start digging with a black-handled knife in order to uproot it. Peony is the herb of the moon, which is also called glycasia, and these are the virtues of peony. If one's tongue is bound, they may be sensed with its leaves. Whoever holds its root and is sensed with its seeds is protected from evil spirits. Whoever eats its seed will be set free from every evil and harm. If one puts it under one's pillow, they are set free from bad dreams. If one binds seven seeds on one's right arm, they are set free from bad thoughts. In times of pestilence, here's the relevant bit, in times of pestilence, put this herb on your threshold in order to be protected from the pestilence. If somebody is poisoned, let him drink it with holy water and he will be healed. Whoever eats its root, he can dominate snakes. It is beneficial for everything. Eat it at the new moon. So, peony, big one right there. Feel free to try to figure out where you might be able to uproot that. This is, of course, you know, um, really linking to the idea that I am increasingly coming to uh, take very seriously that really if you want to be a good occult person you need to be growing a lot of plants just so you know exactly where they are when you need them we have that we also have i've been noticing there's a there's a trend for using psalm 91 uh for magics and what i really like about psalm 91 is that it does this this structural move that is in keeping with the the headless rite where you are it sort of goes from invocation to evocation. You go from talking about a spirit or talking to a spirit to talking as the spirit and inhabiting that place. In the case of Psalm 91, by the time it gets to the final verses of the psalm, it does seem that you are effectively taking the place of the God of the Bible in, in making a proclamation, which is really, really interesting. And we have actually, um, we have a history of, of this being used in insipids, uh, which are these um, kinds of, you can sort of take a talisman and put the beginning of, of something on it to have the, the, the virtue of that thing on the talisman, which I think goes back at least, in terms of using amulet insipids with Psalm 91, I believe that goes back as far as 300 to 700 CE. But last but not least for your Plague Magic Minikin, then we will get to the uh, interview. We have this incantation that comes to us from La Tradition Orale Russe, uh, which is by Lys uh, Gruel Aper, which is a, a collection of, of Russian metaphysical oral uh, snippets. And this is an incantation against all maladies. So I have not been able to find this in 
Russian, which is probably fine because I can't read Russian and so I wouldn't really be able to give it to you in an audio format that well. Anyway, but I can give you the French because this book is French uh, and then I can give you an English translation that was written by somebody else to give you a sense. So the French, uh, more just so we can, you know, try to limit the number of translations in the game of, uh, I was going to say the game of softball. What is the game of translations? Ducks, not ducks. Something to do with cars? Telephone. That's the game. Amazing. Okay, so here is this uh, incantation against all maladies first in the French, and then we'll do it in the English. Je vais dans le vase plein, sous le soleil, resplendisant, sous le clair croissant, sous les étoiles scintillant, sous les nuages flottants, je me sens des nuages, je me couvre des cieux, je mets sur ma tête le soleil, resplendisant. Je m'enveloppe des aurores clairs, je me passe des étoiles innumérables comme autant des flèches accréées pour me protéger de toute maladie nuisible. So there is the French. We also have a translation of that that appears courtesy of John E. Graham in his translation of Claude Lecto's Traditional Magic Spells for Protection and Healing, and the English translation goes as follows. I go into the vast plain, beneath the dazzling sun, beneath the clear crescent, beneath the sparkling stars, beneath the floating clouds. I gird myself with clouds. I cover myself with the skies. I place upon my head the dazzling sun. I wrap myself in clear auroras. I scatter countless stars like so many sharp arrows to protect myself from all harmful illnesses. So that's been your Plague Magic Minute. Um, I will keep digging and bring you more next time. And again, if you have any questions about this or if you have any questions about anything that you want me to look into, by all means, reach out at witchhassle.com on Instagram, at witchhassle, on Twitter, at cooperwilhelm.com slash witchhassle, where there's a little form, or you can even go to patreon.com slash witchhassle if you want to reach out about something involving magic, or if you just want to support the show, which would be, you know, nice for me, and when you undying gratitude from myself. On to the interview. Aiden Walker was kind enough to speak, and I, I don't know how much of an introduction he really needs, so... Uh, Aiden Walker, author of Six Ways. Here we go. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. There is so much to talk about. I feel like we could we could do this for hours. So I don't want to like I don't want to at any moment when you when you feel like it's gone on too long, please let me know and we can we can cut things off because I really appreciate you just taking the time. Cool. No, thank you for having me. It's greatly appreciated. So since there there are so many places to start, I thought maybe we could start. Uh, with like a little bit about beginnings because I mean you're you're acclaimed you're established but how did it all start when did you first get into magic and what was like say the first book on magic that you read oh man um I think the first book on magic that I read was the first of the Carlos Castaneda books oh no way because my dad had those which is very interesting because my dad is kind of uh one of the more kind of hardcore materialists that I know, but at that point in time, he was at least reading that stuff. But that's also at the point in time before they knew that Castaneda kind of made that shit up. So I think he probably was reading it as kind of interesting anthropology, not realizing that that wasn't exactly what it was. Yeah. Okay. And 
I am interested in also. So, do you do you see six ways as an introduction to magic, or do you see it as something for? Because I mean, like, I a friend of mine on the internet. We haven't met in real life, so I guess we're friends. I feel like we're friends. It doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I have so lots like, of people that I think are friends that I've never met. <laughs> I couldn't right. see the internet. So, I mean friendly on the internet i trust them in a way that is probably too much for someone i haven't actually encountered in real life but um them aside uh they just finished your book uh six ways about a week ago and they were saying you know this that they you know they've done magic they've read through a bunch of books but this still felt like an intro book that had a lot to teach them as someone who was sort of the way so where right do you- where do you put six ways? It's sort of like a start from zero kind of beginner thing, or do you see that as somewhere for, uh, I mean, like you have a very particular take. Yeah. I mean, to me, six ways, I wanted to, basically I wanted a book. This is kind of like, I, I had a lot of conversation with my allies, which is kind of a vague process for me, but it's still pretty clear, but I'm not one of those people that they just kind of actually usually speak to that happens on occasion. But I get a lot of information that if I'm like in the right state of mind, I can process. So once I started writing the book, kind of the idea that we came up with was something that would be a really good intro for someone that was kind of a self-starter. Yeah. Somebody that didn't need a lot of handholding, but that would function, though it's not a system, that it would kind of give somebody enough keys to not necessarily need another book. Mm. So it's really information dense, right? I mean, it's short chapters. It's only 52,000 words or something. But I, we, I tried to keep it as kind of dense as possible. It's, it could have been a lot longer, but that didn't really make sense to me. It's like I wanted something to kind of like give somebody a, a, a literal kind of gateway into one of those approaches or entries and kind of have faith that they were, if it's the right thing for them, that they were going to grab it and run with it. Yeah. So I wanted it to be useful to anybody that hadn't kind of come to the same conclusions that I had, right? To at least give them an, an, an entry into that kind of state of mind that I have about this stuff. And then also something that for somebody who'd maybe worked for a long time in different systems, but that were maybe a little more dogmatic, that would maybe open things up to kind of give them a vision that's a little bit different about how this stuff might work or how it might work better, you know? So I think it's... To me, it's an intro book, but it's also a book that you could run with for years because that's really what's in there is years and years and years of work for me and just kind of the best pieces of that. So like there's a there's a section in the trance, one of the trance chapters that is kind of funny because it's like it's just bullet points. I think I don't remember how I formatted it exactly, but that's like a decade of experimentation. But I didn't want to kind of handhold. It's like, no, you go because then you're doing what I do. I want you to see that there's possibilities and then go play. So I think it's it's both a beginner's book and definitely not a beginner's book at the same time. OK, it's interesting that you. So when you when you talk about your allies and the book, you used we in a very particular way that how do you feel about your relationship with your allies in terms of something like working on this book? Are they almost like co-authors or because this seems like it was sort of derived out of experimentation more than something like, say, revelation? Yeah, no, I don't really kind of go for the revelation thing too much. It's more that they're really present and that the way that I work kind of is to involve them in a lot of in pretty much everything that I do. And be really clear kind of on a continuous basis, like this is the direction that I'm going in. 
and this is what I have going on, and I want input and help. And so they'll occasionally hand me practices and stuff, and I'll usually reference that those came from them. And so it's more like having a little uh, crew of people going like, yeah, let's not put that in this book. Let's put that in the next book. Like, okay. let's keep this tight like this was the and then the same thing with the, the book that follows that'll be coming out probably at the end of this year it was really clear it's like no this is just these three things you know instead of being kind of survey like like six ways was these allies are did they come to you or did you seek them out i think that they're present for most of us and this is partially me my think and partially their think because we talk about this stuff a lot or have over the last you know, 20 years, I guess, that I've been really aware of them. I think that there's like a cluster of allies uh, or kind of powers that are around each of us that if we choose to go directly to them, they're gonna, they kind of wake up more. Like mostly we ignore them, you know? Yeah. Or most people ignore them or they codify them, right? So like you may have these allies that have been talking to you and then you end up in a particular school of magic or religion that you ha- that you causes you to then define them in a very specific way that can shut down that relationship or at least channel it down into a single channel, into a single track. And if you don't do that, it's pretty peculiar. Uh, I guess yeah. uh, most of the literature and most of even the tribal society stuff does that, that there's kind of a set way that you deal with things. And I've never really gone for that. And so it's very fluid. I mean, some, I, I've never gone specifically looking for an ally that does one thing. But I totally frequently go, I'm interested in doing this, and I would like some some kind of people who would like to play that way and see who comes around. And uh, whether that's people that are already present, you know, whether that's allies that are already present or whether that's new things that get attracted because of the thing that I want to do, it's always worked out in that way. So would it be fair to say that, because like, I'm, I'm used to hearing people who are sort of the chaos magic band kind of describe their relationship with something like, say, Odin or uh, Eshumaribo or something like that as being, this is sort of, you know, a cookie cutter through which I put the energy that is inherent to myself just so I can work with it in a particular way. And I've heard other people who follow perhaps a more traditional set of magical practice say something like, oh, you know, these beings, they're completely independent of us. These are the names that we've learned. You you reach out to this thing and it's been there since the dawn of time or something like that. But it sounds like you're kind of, so with your allies, you're kind of working in like a, a middle road between those where these are the masks that a number of different things can wear to sort of approach us for us to approach them. But they're, they're sort of independent, but malleable. Is that a fair? I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a weird one. Um, it's a really hard, it's kind of a, it's a peculiar question. It's the reason that I kind of feel outside of a lot of the magical and occult stuff is because I truly don't know. There's a lot of stuff that presents to me as independent and has done crazy shit as far as time goes, right? Where a set of allies will show up and kind of I'll interact with them, uh, you know, on the occasions that I do over the course of a year or two or over six months or something. And then an event in my life occurs. And when I'll go back into that trance state, they're waiting. And they're like, okay, you know why we showed up now. Okay. So, and we, you know, we've been doing all of this work, so you know what to do. So I don't know what that is. I mean, and some of those, you know, it's pretty interesting. I guess now about 
four, five years ago, I, I encountered kind of the most powerful, as far as effect on me, not like, you know, thunderbolts and shit, um, <laughs> group of allies. And they did this long training or kind of introduction to their way of things, you know, is I guess how I would say it. Okay. And after that had been going on for quite a long time, they basically said, OK, we're going to show you what we're like to us. And totally kind of that my experience of them completely transformed. And it's like, oh, that was just so I could kind of comprehend you. So they kind of showed in a particular form because I could deal with it. Yeah. And then kind of popped up and said, okay. And and at that point, it also switched. Like previous to that, they're obviously, they're communicating in a way that was very sensible and normal to me. And when that switch tripped, it was like, oh, shit, I have to learn this entire language. And they showed me how to do it, right? Yeah. And this is mostly feeling and then, you know, images in my head stuff. But they showed me that they were, like, really unlike any of the descriptions of spirits that I've ever heard. What were what were they like? They were basically, uh, this is a, a group that I call the sisters. I don't, I rarely have names for any of the allies that I have. So sometimes I come up with names and see if they're okay with me using that just for my convenience, you know? And the sisters originally showed uh, or presented to me. And so, again, it's it's I, I don't like to nail it down as one thing or another. But my experience of them was as these female human spirits, very austere, very beautiful in a kind of ageless kind of like they have emotional content, but it's not like ours. But it's like they, they, they tap into ours or something, you know, so they, they, if there's sadness going on with you you get a response that makes sense to that. But it's not a, a human response. And then when they did the shift, they showed up as uh, an absolute hive being. Like, this is, like, really close to some kind of insect uh, hive behavior. Uh, and when I was having that experience with them and talking to them, it's like, yeah, that all that kind of facade of these individual you know, human, humanoid female forms fell away and their conversation was entirely in the context of the best way I could translate what they were presenting was we, us, do this and you are useful to us to do this. Huh. And we have things that you need to know as well. And it will be useful to you, but we have to also change you in some ways so you can communicate with us, you know. And so it's a it's a weird it's, it's again, it's kind of outside of most of the descriptions that I've that I've come across and things like that. Oh, yeah, that's that's a that's a totally new one for me. Is it so what was their agenda with you? What were they hoping to get out of it? Um, they are kind of death beings in that they deal with moving spirits of the dead that haven't that aren't transitioning right that aren't moving properly through whatever happens next and that's what they do and so they taught me to do that and so they would kind of show me or take me to places where there was someone who was trapped in between and they wouldn't show me what to do they would just kind of put me in that place and some and kind of their presence somehow kind of opened up something in me that i knew what to do Okay. And I could kind of, this is, again, this is just experiential on my part. I don't care whether, I'm not suggesting anyone should believe me, you know, as, a, as an objective thing. But, and I figured out these different ways to move these, you know, spirits along. And then uh, my son had a heart attack and went on life support. Oh, my gosh. 
And I went in to see them. And that was that event that I said. And so this was three years later, but they'd gotten kind of crazy and they revealed themselves to me in that kind of hive form three weeks before he passed over. So, you know, I heard the news. He was on the other side of the country and I went into the temple and said, what's up? And they were amazing. They were like, this is what we've been working the last three weeks with you for. And they were kind of (laughs) like, I don't know how to describe it. It was like, they were like appreciative of my emotional content. Right. Like they understood that I had emotional content, yeah. but they were like, that's not really what's going on here. And so you, you do what you got to do. But there's other stuff that you need to do because he's stuck. Wow. And we it is your job in this case to get him unstuck whichever way he goes. And so I did that work for a couple of days and then he passed over. Yeah. And so it's, it's so they're interesting. I mean, it's like they their take is that like this is just something that happens and people get stuck and we unstick them. So they're kind of my contact to that world. And sometimes, and I don't know, like it's, I've asked them and they've never been clear about it. Like when they've brought me in trance to some, to, to like one of these stuck spirits, it's like, is that cause they can't move that person, but I have some connection to that person. Right. Yeah. Some kind of, you know, what you could call a spiritual connection or something to that person so that I'm able to do that. Or is it that there or what is it's like, I don't I've never been clear as like, is this a teaching thing or is this something that needs to happen? And, and you've got me to a place now that I can help. I don't know. So when you say you, you go to them, is this this is a purely sort of you're doing it in trance state or are you actually, you know, getting say like a haunted house or something like that? No, no, no. Um, all of this stuff I do in trance. I do a straight progressive relaxation kind of trance induction and then I can move around in a few different places and in, in what I think of as the other worlds. And, and that's also, yeah, those are like really interestingly skewed if we're coming from kind of a hermetic point of view or something. Like there's places I work and there's places I don't. And there's places I have allies and there's places I don't. You know, it's certainly not a place where I'm going to go into a particular location and go, I want to talk to the ally and it's going to show up. It's like, no, you can just hang out then because there's nobody here to talk to you. <laughs> okay. And when you say these these places where you sometimes have allies and sometimes don't, uh, just to like be completely explicit for folks who are like listening at home and stuff, like yeah, these are not these are not physical locations. These are astral areas. Yeah, I mean, I I think it, my view is kind of uh, I've kind of adopted a, I guess some of the concepts that I've learned from reading on you know shamanry in that to me there appears to be a, a pretty wide range of kind of other worlds. And that's where I'm going. You know, it's like astral projection. I don't know that I'm projecting, you know, I'm entering into a different kind of reality, but what that process is other than that I can relax into it. And then I go there, it can get pretty intense physically. You know, I get a lot of kind of after the first few times, not scary, but kind of seizure kind of things, which I think is, you know, in my mind is kind of tied into some of what the, the sailor trance discussions about seething and shaking probably are but that's a pretty common thing that kicks up if i'm in the right places okay but other than that no this is just deep relaxation and going either i want to go to this place or i want to go explore or coming in and going i'm looking for information and then sometimes i'll get led to a particular place okay and your experiences of of these places are they are they primarily visual or they sort of sense like vague emotional sort of feelings or how do you i'm not the most visual guy 
so you know i'm not a i'm not an easy hallucinator at all uh, which i can say with vast experience of psychedelics and toxic plants and things that's not a real common effect for me but it shifts between visual and kind of the and and then just kind of knowing and it shifts pretty rapidly there so like sometimes i'll like know where i am but i couldn't really say that i'm seeing it and then there's like tricks that i've learned so like i spend a, a lot of time in a space that's a western space that's kind of fairly open forest you know it's not super dense forest and very very wet lots of water on the ground and lots of water on the plants and if i want to get deeper into that i can i just need to find water i can touch and then at that point it usually becomes more visual like that sensory anchor is enough to pull me in but it tends to drift in and out i'm not super it's not always as immersive as as uh, i think people expect it to be it's one of the things that i kind of talk to people about a lot is that sometimes it's like you're telling yourself a story but it's so consistent over the years and the effects are so consistent that it's clearly you're sensing in some fashion but sometimes it's visual it's definitely heavy 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 feeling zones i definitely feel more than i see unless things are like there's particular points that i get into that are fully immersive but it's not usually avatar but occasionally it goes there i i feel bad because i think i'm one of eight people in america not seen avatar <laughs> all i really know about it is they the hair connects to the animals they ride that's i think so i don't remember i just remember the visuals on it and i know i, I have a lot of friends that have incredible other world or uh, astral projection visual acuity yeah. So for them, it's like being dropped inside a 3D full virtual reality. And that's not usual for me. It happens sometimes. But, uh, you know, over time, I've learned that that's kind of it's it's nice and it's fun, but it's not at all necessary. Right. I mean, I feel like spirit contact kind of takes a village a little bit. Like a week or two ago, I was doing a ritual with a friend of mine. And we were both sort of like getting things from the spirit that we conjured. But I was getting like visuals and he was getting audio which together kind of we were able to form a complete picture when you when you move spirits over what what is your sense of where they're going or the <laughs> i have no idea oh, okay um, so the sisters tell a story that is that the death state is the life state and as i understand that they're like you guys think that you live these lives this is kind of what they've told me they said you, you believe that you live this life and then you die and that's the anomaly but the life is the anomaly and the existence in the other world is the normal experience and so you should be way more chill about dying than you are because you're just coming home for a while and then you'll probably be alive again later uh, i mean easy for them to say but yeah they're... exactly <laughs> <laughs> and again it's all interpretation that's you know this is again it's a I certainly am not anybody that has any desire for anyone to go, oh, that's the truth. It's like, fuck if I know if it's the truth. Uh, that's what's been presented to me. That's the interpretations that I've built from that. Uh, yeah. And I have my internal reasons for believing that that's accurate enough. Actually, that brings up a thing that I wanted to ask you about, because I feel like it's easy, especially if you're doing kind of an experimental kind of magic that it's, I don't know, like it feels easy to get kind of lonely a little bit because you're, you're, you know, you're having such individual and personal experiences. Do you think community as like a person who does a magical practice, do you think community is important with other sort of magic-y type folk? Uh, 
I'm really torn about that. I'm kind of, uh, I'm attracted to community, but it's never worked super well for me. You know, if, if I were to guess, I would say that my neurology doesn't really function very well in that kind of situation. And so I'm pretty physically isolated. So I don't have any physical interaction with anyone else that practices on any kind of regular basis. I did. I was in part of uh, an OTO lodge. Uh, I was, uh, you know, helped run both a Temple of Psychic Youth Access Point and an IOT uh, temple and then a, a number of working groups. But kind of I hit this place where I didn't want anybody else's influence on what yeah. my experience was that I just straight up did not care about anyone else's thoughts on it or their opinions on it. Because most of what I saw going on around me and, and my the kind of other folks that I knew that practiced experiences were so different that it either to me meant that we were doing something different or we were, you know, in a, in a kind of critical sense or that that experience uh, for me was kind of meant to be solitary. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's kind of I, I, I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that. I love having kind of an online magical community that I can interact with. And, and I have a few people that I talk to about this stuff, you know, through the back channels of that things. Uh, that are a little bit deeper than what I, or a little more more personally than what I do in kind of the group stuff that I do or the teaching or things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not that guy. Yeah, is is Z cluster still active? Um, there's there's a lot of Z's around, but I don't see much actual activity. I stopped being active in the Z cluster when it was still running pretty hard, and um, then kind of just did a light touch back into it i guess in around 2012 or 13 but uh it doesn't seem to be super active and it's again it's one of those things that it's like there's only so much because of the way that i work there's only so much outside information even that i want access to yeah because i find that it it makes it harder to do what i do i think i hit a point where kind of more kind of theoretical discussion about stuff is really toxic i don't care for it i don't find that it helps whatsoever yeah. How did, um, were you there with Z Cluster from the very beginning? Yeah, I founded the Z Cluster with my friend Marek. How uh, did I, how'd you guys decide to do that? How did that sort of come about? You know, I was in the IoT and I moved to New Orleans and I met Mark DeFreitz, who's also the guy that taught me jewelry, and his wife, Pamela. And there was a shift that, there was a letter that came out from the IoT that turned out not really to be from the IoT, like somebody using station letterhead. And sending it out to the station mailing list. But retrospectively, there was some distancing there. I don't know what happened on that side because I was just like, fuck y'all. I was so not down with what came out that, uh, yeah, I just said, I think this is fucking bullshit. I behaved very poorly with it. Um, you know, not one of my proud moments on how I uh, interacted with people. But I think that ties into that thing we were talking about community yeah. um, i'm not really the guy to be doing that i don't think and mark and i were like we should create something that's totally dead serious on the practice end it's so ridiculous that no one can take it too seriously mm. and that was our approach was like okay let's really always do the work <laughs> you know and let's let it be open to anybody no matter how they practice and that was that to me is the kind of the heart of the z cluster was you know we really don't care how you do this we care that you do this, and that's it. We have no opinion 
on whether what you do is valid or whether your beliefs are valid or whether your experiences are valid, but we're happy that you're doing it. And uh, there's a bunch of people who might be interested in doing it with you. So did you go out looking for people or did they just somehow find you? No, this was back in the Usenet days. So this was alt magic and alt magic chaos. And so uh, we just kind of sent out the, whatever it is, the, t- the 12 principles of chaos or whatever it was. And pretty rapidly decided that it was just like if you had any contact with anyone in the Z cluster ever, you were in the Z cluster. Hell yeah. Uh, so that there couldn't be any argument about that, right? Which yeah. just pissed off so many people because they're like, well, you, Z cluster is fucked. And you go, well, excellent. You're a member. So do whatever you want with it. They're like, what the fuck do you mean I'm a member? It's like, you talk to me. Anybody you talk to is a member now. Like, it was just ridiculous. We were totally playing with kind of that. It was kind of an attempt to counter the elitism that was coming out at that point in time. Yeah. Because really, I mean, I'm sorry, but there's nothing elite about anything, you know, uh, in this world of that, in the magical world. This is all, to me at least, this is all innate in the animal. And there's not really a right way to do any of it, I don't think. I think that there's ways that are highly ineffective and highly dangerous. (laughs) And probably not recommended for most people, but I also know people who thrive on that shit. Okay. So they're like, there's sort of wrong ways to do it, but not really. There might be, there's wrong ways for you to do it. Right. Or at least there are better ways for you to do it. And this is true for all of us. Like I'm constantly playing in that field. Like what can I cut away here? What's extraneous? What's not working? And, you know, being willing to shed allies when those relationships don't work anymore right it's 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 like you hit that point where you go it's it's not you bro it's me uh you know i've changed <laughs> i mean this is this is a natural part of of growing up which we are always all doing Actually, hopefully <laughs> speaking of shutting up like so scraping i think is how you uh refer to it in the in the book mm-hmm. what what makes sort of scraping as you conceive a bit different from say I don't know, uh, cleansing in a broader sense or uh, uh, having a, a conscious uncoupling of some other kind? Um, just to me, it's really effective. And because it's so simple and there's nothing to it, essentially, right? I, I can teach somebody to scrape in 30 seconds. And it, I have uh, a lot of Buddhist influence in my stuff, though I'm not a Buddhist. Yeah. And it is that concept. And it's a, you know, so scraping is essentially a hybrid of from coming from a castaneda perspective on the luminous fibers, right? That we're all sending out these kind of fibrous attachments to one another and to places and objects of power. And if we don't control that, they stay with us. And in most cases, that's not good. And so scraping is a very simple way to sever those attachments, right? And coming from the kind of Buddhist take on that, you know, that's kind of one of the main tasks, I think, if we want to be clear about who we are right now versus who we were before, or who we were in a different relationship or all of that stuff. And so scraping is just about getting rid of all of those attachments so that you can kind of be, oh, OK, if I'm completely clean right now, then I'm good. And it just, yeah, for whatever reason, it works very well for me. I mean, a lot of people I know, if they use iron, people try and do it with other things. And I don't understand because iron works better. But that's just me. So to make the the visual of this, like completely clear for the for the kids at home. Yeah. You're like actually taking a piece of iron and like moving it on your body in a particular way. Yeah, you're basically, if you imagine, and I think it's how I describe it in the book, is if you took a shower and didn't have a towel, right? You'd run your hands down 
you know, from your shoulder to your hand and kind of scrape the water off. Do the same thing with a piece of iron about an inch off of your skin all over your body while consciously being aware that you're doing this to sever all attachments. So this is like an EMP. Like this is like it's it's not selective. It's just, you know, whoosh. Yeah, no, you're severing them all with the understanding that we're remaking attachments constantly. And so this is why I do it before the reclaiming rite or before some kind of self-blessing or consecration, because then that's basically inviting the allies back in. Because again, I want a gap from them. I want that moment to go as this is building back up. Is it the thing that I want now? Just because it's been in the past doesn't mean that it's still beneficial. So do you ever get a sense that like when you, you know, do this scraping and then you call back to allies that you want to retain that something's been lost in in that or i have never have that's not to say it couldn't happen for someone you know my kind of sense is is uh i i do take the the buddhist view that there is nothing even vaguely like permanence (laughs) um that everything is passing constantly yeah. And so that's not a I mean, I, I know people that have that have had some issues with that, but their worldview is very different than mine. So, again, these things have been with me forever. They're all around me. All I'm actually doing is breaking that immediate tie. I'm assuming that they, you know, they, they still walk with me. It's not a banishing per se. It's just getting those fibers off of you so that you're not leaking energy in places that you don't necessarily want to. And to realize that on a very regular basis, we should be making those decisions. I don't know if that makes sense or not. No, it makes perfect sense. Actually, I want to, you, you mentioned the the reclaiming ritual. And I, I wanted to bring that up because I think it is interesting to talk about that. Because I think when people hear a ritual for reclaiming your power, that sounds like it would be the kind of thing that you would do after some really huge experience of trauma or during like, say, like a deep depression or something like that. But it's not like a... It's not like a, a sort of, you know, yearly holiday or something. It's like more of a, a daily practice, right? Right. It's an interesting thing. And it's, again, it comes from perspective, right? So I came to the conclusion when I was pretty young, I would say probably when I was 11 or 12, that we are all essentially programmed by our families, by our cultures, by our peer groups, by education, by media, all of that stuff. And watching the rise of kind of it just ever more mediated reality, right? Mm -hmm. You know, from to where we are now, where it's just constant. I essentially think that unless you are actively breaking the programming that's being put on you, you're operating on somebody else's program. Yeah. Which to me is is a total violation. And so, yeah, you to me, that's the most basic practice almost is to go, okay, is the thing that I'm experiencing, A, is it real? Or is it a delusion? Does it matter? I'm angry about this thing. Am I justified in that anger? Okay, maybe I am. Does that serve me? Right? So being justified is not a reason enough to give in to an emotional state. Having an emotional response to something isn't enough to give that the same weight as any other experience. And so to me, that reclaiming process, that scraping process, and a lot of what I do could be viewed as kind of deconstructing our programming all the time and keeping us aware that if I get pissed at somebody on the highway or if somebody says something shitty about my book to me in an email, 
if I hold on to that at all, that's this massive energy leak. And that's energy that isn't going where I probably want it to go. And so I do want to reclaim that, you know, so it is the things that get taken from us, but it's also the things that we give away, right? If I get overly riled up about the president, is that serving me? It's not saying that it's not a justified response, right? Yeah. Horrible shit happens in the world. Is my response beneficial in to the things that I want it to be beneficial to? Again, it's whether it's justified or not is almost irrelevant. It's like because that's just the excuse, right? Uh, that's the the excuse that I get to be self righteous about this thing. But as a magician, this is I want to be engaged. I want to choose where my energy goes. I want to choose what inputs I take. I want to choose the degree that I accept my own interpretations of things or not, right? So when you say that magic is, an, to, to quote somewhere where you've written this, an art of total responsibility, the responsibility you're talking about is taking, is it taking this kind of responsibility for being intentional with the way that your emotions are? To me, yeah, it's like, because if we are, if, if we come with a basic posit that we are able to influence our reality and the reality that is around us, right? Because I'm not a psychological model of magic guy, which totally confuses some people because they all they see is the psych stuff. Yeah. But that's kind of base level, right? That's what I talked about. It. I'm teaching a class right now. And one of the ways that I describe that is a lot of the psychological techniques produce a gap where you go, oh, there are changes that could happen here. And there are changes that are happening here. And are those moving in a way that I want them to? Because to me, that's what magic is about, is I want to influence in particular directions how things play out or how I experience things. And so, yeah, that's what the total responsibility thing is, is, you know, somebody could roll in here and, and do hideous shit to me and I could end up crippled, right? This yeah. is, you know, I'm not a, I'm not the everything happens for a reason person, nor am I the kind of you bring it all upon yourself no matter what it is person. I don't buy that side of the new age stuff. But the only thing after that happens that I have control over is what I do next. And so that it happened outside of my control once it's happened is completely irrelevant. It happened. That's done now. And it's up to me because no one else is going to do it to determine what happens next. And this doesn't mean I get to control all of it, but I'm sure as hell going to try and control the pieces I can or at least guide them. Right. Between the scraping and reclaiming your power, I mean, these seem like basically daily, more or less, rituals? It depends. I go, at, at this point, when I started doing them, I start, with almost any practice that I take on, I tend to take it on pretty close to daily because I want to see what it does, right? And I think that um, for me with working with magicians that don't have a pretty solid meditation background, yeah, they're not used to doing stuff kind of intentionally regularly that they're looking for the next thing to do so that's sort of the the root of my question actually is so on a daily basis what are the things that you're trying to do basically every day oh Uh, for me i want to get clear about what i'm doing that day and i want to kind of see what's on me because i pick up shit from the internet and from the people that i encounter i'm (laughs) i'm not exactly an empath but i'm fairly sensitive in other ways and so it's pretty easy for me to get jacked up because I walked, you know, somewhere where somebody was really fucked up and in a lot of pain. There's yeah. a way that that'll mess me up. So I want that stuff off of me. 
and I want to make offerings to my allies and I want to let the kind of whole collection of the stuff that is around me that are the allies and my direct experience with the field as I think of it, things like that. And then kind of my deep mind and myself to know what we're, what the long-term goals are for everything that I'm doing. And so that's my daily practice. It's like, are we still going in the direction that I want to for all the kind of main projects that I have and just my life in general? And if we aren't, what needs to change? And is that, you know, on me or is that something that I need to get a little bit of help with or whatever version of that? But that's my primary thing, which is, you know, turns into a lot of sigil magic and candle magic and things like that. But those are less daily than more as, as steering needs to occur. I'm curious, when did, so to sort of shift the conversation a yeah. little bit, when did you start making jewelry and when did it become clear that that was going to be an important part of your magical practice? Um, I started making jewelry, I think, in the mid to late, I guess it was closer to the late 90s. So I ended up kind of going straight from Marx, where I learned a little bit. And I got a job at an art school that had a jewelry class. So that's where I kind of got continued that. So I would say 98, 97, 98, 99, I did, I did a little bit. And then uh, I broke off completely from that around the, eh, around the time or just, at, or just before the time when I kind of stopped dealing with the outer kind of magical communities that I w- had been a part of and did other stuff for until uh, 2012. And then I picked it up again. Was it clear from the start that this was going to be a magic thing you were doing or was it just sort of? Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. It's like, you know, I learned from from a magician and it was immediately talismans. (laughs) I've made like five pieces of jewelry that weren't talismans. When did, um, so actually I, I mentioned to some friends of mine that I was going to be talking to you in case there was, you know, anything they wanted me to bring up because this was, you know, a rare opportunity. And one of them who is himself a jeweler asked, how long did you, did you make these talismans as part of a, a business before it turned a profit given that you were, you know, working for an explicitly and exclusively magical audience? It depends how you define that, but it took about four years before... Let me see if this is correct. So I think I sold the first piece in mid-2013, and about four years ago, my wife left her job. So I've been supporting us, or I was supporting us, doing that until recently since then. So it took a good number of years. A lot of that really because I was vastly undercharging what I do for the way that I work, which is actually kind of, you know, it's, it's right now I'm, I'm on hiatus for making jewelry. I've, I don't know if I made any in. I think I made one 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 set this year, but um, I, w- I probably won't do any more for at least this year and maybe next year because I'm focusing on other things. But yeah, it's, it, it, if you can control your over overhead and if you actually figure out how you work and what makes sense to charge for what you do, completely irrelevant to the market, yeah. and then if the market happens anyway, <laughs> I, I would assume it'll take a few years. Okay. And like, what is the process sort of like? Do people do people say to you, I need a talisman for something or I'd love a talisman for something and you kind of put something together or is it you suddenly have a thought like, 
this would be a thing that would be useful or a thing that I just want to make? It, it, it's, it's both. When I do custom work, it's absolutely somebody comes and sometimes they'll actually have an idea for some design element or something of it. But generally what I want, my preference in that situation as a custom worker is I want them to basically dump me a stream of consciousness about what they're trying to do with it. Um, and, I, and then I can kind of tap into that current. And that's the point where the what I talk about is the kind of the subset of my allies that I refer to as the shop spirits or the shop fairies. That's where they tend to get involved. And I'll just kind of churn it for a while and then something will kind of pop. And it's like, oh, I see how this works. And then I can design from there. The other stuff was kind of a mix of the stuff that I was kind of designing on my own to go into the shop that then people could buy. A lot of that is kind of my approach to building talismans from sigil work. Hmm. And then tapping into, again, that specific current. That's kind of if I have a skill set, that's the one that I can kind of go, okay, this is an issue for me or for someone else or that I see present in the community of people around me that might be interested in the things that I do. What's the shape and what's the function and what's kind of the spirit behind the tool that will do that thing? So that's all, that stuff's fairly crazily organic. Um, but yeah, I stopped doing custom work a little over a year ago, I think. And then again, I stopped doing jewelry at the beginning of the year. Okay. And what is sort of the basic the basic theory behind it? Is it sort of just like if if you have a a talisman that has a sigil on it or is based around a sigil, it has power that a sigil would have? Or are these inspirited in some way? Or I think of them as creatures. That's the goal for me, is I want to see the creature kind of come alive during the process. And then at that point, it should be treated as such and it should be treated as a spirit ally in my mind. Again, I'm not here to impose anything on anybody. I could give a shit. If people want it as jewelry, that's fine. But to me, that's missing the point. And so with my stuff, I'm hoping, and if in, in my, again, my personal view, that these things should go home and be worked with as if they are something that you can, that they're, more, that they're a living tool that has a function and that it wants to be used and it wants to be fed for <laughs> what it does. For more about the, the shop spirits, are these a separate set of allies from the ones you typically sort of work with and have around you? Or they are, they are. The shop spirits are kind of specific to the jewelry work. How I would say is that I transmit in a few different ways the work that I do. And so the general allies are all up in the books and the classes and the shop spirits are really about the talismanic work. And so kind of the, the, the shop spirits are on vacation now, but yeah, so th they appear to be different again. They present to me as different or I interpret them as different. So they, they sort of came as part of the work in a way. Yeah. When I started, I, I, I got the bug. I was like, Oh, I know what I could do. I was living out in the backwoods of Tennessee. I didn't have a job, but I had electricity. So I was like, I know how to make jewelry. I could make some jewelry and maybe that would be fun. There was no real intent for it to be a business. In any, I mean, I knew I'd sell them, but I didn't look at it as being a way of making a living or anything at that time. And as soon as I started, they showed up. And it's like, oh, I remember you from when I was doing this before. <laughs> oh, okay. um, and uh, they were really clear. And then within that, you know, a few deities popped in. I don't work with deities in general, but, you know, Hecate came in very strong and wanted stuff done. So we did that. And I did some pieces that were tied into Wotan uh, or Woden. And um, yeah, and it kind of eventually, yeah, I mean, they, they were really present right away. 
it's like. And again, I remembered them from the jewelry school, actually. You know, I have this crazy thing that I built when I was as my kind of final project for one semester at the jewelry school that was a transliteration of a sigil into a Taoist shrine. So it looks like a Taoist shrine, but it's a sigil. (laughs) And it's a sigil that has particular potencies that are still highly active. Um, And I remember them showing up when I was building that. How big was it? It's little. It's it's built out of a customized cigar box and then a lot of acid-etched copper and brass and bronze. And so it's the size of a, you know, medium-sized wooden cigar box. But it was just funny. It was like I was reading something in a, in a book. I don't remember what book it was. And it was a description of these kind of elemental powers described as being these Taoist kind of dragons. And it was like, oh, I could make this kind of large-scale talismanic sigil project totally to reflect this kind of other world and what would that feel like and it's it's awesome it's the one thing i've never kind of let out of my sight as i've ditched everything else i've owned many times over that rules out of the the deities you've worked with in your shop which one is the one that you feel closest to or even i don't know i dare say your favorite you know i don't do the deity thing very well but with that said my connection is to the norns uh, the weavers and uh yeah, they're they're big for me, but they're the only only thing that is big. And there's you know there's those that would argue that they aren't deities, <laughs> but they're kind of uh, to me they're one of the best explanations of magic is kind of contained in that kind of what I would say is kind of the mystery of the Norns, and so they would I would have to throw that in as they'd be my favorites. I have to say I'm I'm actually kind of unfamiliar. Who who are the or what are the norms? The norns, N O R N S in English. They come from uh, Scandinavian and Germanic mythology, and they are they're the basically the northern European version of the fates. So they're seen as weavers that they weave everything, and so uh, they're Erda, Verthandi, and Skold, which to the best of my understanding, means what was and what is and what should come to pass, right, is scold. And so to me, it's a, this really interesting description of kind of the trajectory of life, right, is certain things happened in the past, certain things are happening now. And given that, these are the causes and conditions that will lead to what should come to pass. And to me, magic is getting involved in that what is turning into what should come to pass. So that what should come to pass is what is more pleasing to you or is better for the system. Because not everything that I, that I, I mean, to me, again, if you're kind of being conscious magically, not everything is going to be the best thing for you. But sometimes it's the best thing for the overall situation that you are a part of. What is your experience like working with the Norns? Is it similar to your experience working with allies or is it a fundamental um, nominology going on there yeah it's a very different thing i'm just aware of them and they're the first they were the first kind of language that i kind of bid on that made sense to me about what we're doing with magic and now i use kind of buddhist terminology so kind of you know the in you know from coming from like old buddhism uh and i don't know much about mahayana buddhism but i imagine this piece is still in there what they say is that 
when they're talking about the teaching of dependent origination is that everything that arises and comes to pass does so because of causes and conditions, right? Yeah. So this is like an understanding that nothing happens independently, right? Hence dependent origination. And so to me, magic is about producing causes and conditions. Because again, if we're aware that whether we're viewing some of these mystical systems like Taoism or whether we're looking at these things as things that are shit way beyond my my intellectual pay grade of quantum physics, right? And, and quantum entanglement and things like that. To me, that's what magic is, is we're going, we're using these kind of metaphorical tools and these physical and mental and psychic actions to produce the causes and conditions that would change the outcomes of what is coming based upon the past and where and the trajectory we're on now. And so the Norns were kind of my first vision into that. It's like, oh, wait a second. This is not about opposing, somehow concentrating so hard that my will gets imposed into the universe. This is how do I tap into what's already going on and then apply some leverages wherever I can and attempt to produce those causes that would then have that effect. So when you conceive of like a magical ritual or something like that for a particular end, is your conception of that trying to think back 10 steps ahead to what would lead to the initial causes of that? Or is it more sort of seeing where things are exactly at this moment and kind of looking where to nudge? Like, how do you conceive of the yeah, idea? Well, part of how that works for me is that I nearly only do long-term magic. It is very, very rare that I kind of put out a fire, right? I'm not interested in being reactive because if I have to be reactive to things it's probably too late for me to influence them. And so my approach is very then, of course, proactive, right? So what I'm looking for is, is everything that I do feeding in the direction that I want to be going, right? And this is what I talk about, about steering the ship in the book. So there's lots of stuff that I could do magic for that could be interesting and fun. And I certainly did a lot of that in the past. But at this point, I've realized, like, no, everything has to fit into that kind of projection forward of the ship. I've got the ship in the current most of the time. And all I should be doing is doing course correction, saying, hey, it would be better if we got a little bit more of this and a little less of this. Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question, but that's... It does. It definitely does. Because, I mean, I was thinking of this, I think, in a much more mechanical way. Sort of like, you know, you have to think of of magic as as setting up the Rube Goldberg machine of the future. But totally. this totally. more organic than that. Well, I think everything is, I, yeah, to me, this is, again, I think that this is innate in, in, in the animal, and I think it's the human animal, and it's one of kind of, to me, it's the, it's the it was the missing piece, right? It's like I was looking for something in specific when I came across magic. And I certainly wouldn't be able to really go back to what that was. You know, I was having a lot of involuntary possession experiences in the early days of it. And so for me, it was like, what does this actually do? Right. And what do I have to know to do it (laughs) to get, you know, kind of appropriately involved? And uh, so to me, it's very organic. It's it is. It's like so this is again, if I if I think about 
if I think about what I do at the altar, most of what I do at the altar is just what I described coming in and going, thank you for this. This is going really well. This is a little sketchy. So I want to shore this up. But I often don't know what that is. And so I first hand it over to the allies. And if that doesn't do the correction, then I can come at it from something like sigil magic or petitions or talismanic work to kind of, again, use it as guidance, right? So if I wanted to make the shift from making jewelry full-time to writing full-time, that's a long-term chunk of work that is many, many pieces, but it's not really programmed. It's more, again, kind of feeding that direction into the into the rudder of that ship, right? Yeah. And going, we want to go, we're trying to end up in Fiji. (laughs) Um, And so I don't have to go straight to Fiji because that's not how things work, right? Systems aren't, don't tend to be linear and especially the ones that are influenceable through magic. But if we can kind of stay kind of centered in that direction, it's like, that's, I get, that's the big one for me. And it's the hardest thing that I've found to kind of, in kind of teaching stuff is it's difficult because people kind of get overly locked in down to the kind of micromanagement. Yeah. And at least in my experience, the micromanagement doesn't work in magic. And so it's how do you kind of do that gentle steering? How do you kind of have that relationship and go, okay, I can see where I was and I can see where I am and how I always describe this. And that points a trajectory, right? where I was and where I am, if I draw a line from that and continue it on, unless I change things or something radical occurs, I'm going to end up, you know, straight on that line. It's like train tracks. And so if I want that outcome to be different, how do I shift that? And this is a combination of magic. It's about inner work. It's about how do I stop being, you know, years ago for me, it was like, how do I not be at the mercy of my emotions? Not how do I not have emotions? That's stupid. But how do I accept that those things are happening, but not give them more weight than they necessarily need? Right? Yeah. Uh, It was that same thing. It was like that. The thing that hit me at, at that point in time was that same thing that I talked about before is like, is being justified in feeling a certain way reason enough to continue feeling that way is that beneficial do you see the work of the magician as being primarily work on the self or work on the world because it seems like it's a lot of the self um i think the best way to do work on the world is through work on the self i mean at least for me that's been the case but i think it's both i think it's totally i mean it's it's again if, if it's if we're looking at kind of total responsibility First, yeah. that's total responsibility for yourself, right? Yeah. But then within that, we all have different drivers that are going to determine whether we uh, choose to attempt to change the world and how we choose to do that and whether that is more kind of myopic or self-serving. And that's not being said judgmentally. It's just a way that you can do it, right? Or whether that is outer directed. It's kind of interesting. I deal with or I work with a lot of people that are kind of um, their focus is very much outer service work. And until I can kind of get them or something gets them to do the selfish work, their effectiveness is kind of totally half assed. Mm. It's that whole, you know, fit, fit your fit your own mask first on the airplane. Right. Yeah. Uh, 
And those are the people that really don't want to do that because they actually are so driven to serve that that almost hurts them, right? Like they they feel bad about taking care of themselves often. And until someone has that revelation, like, oh, if I take care of myself, I can do 10 times the service work. But that requires doing, you know, you, you usually kind of have to step back a few steps and go, okay, where am I fucked up? Where am I right on? How much do I, you know, the big one for me, because it's part of a writing project I'm on right now, is there's all these things that we're supposed to care about, right? And these are can be viewed as moral or ethical things or family things or political things. But how many of those things are distractions to the individual for whatever it is that they're here to do? You know, I'm here to do a certain kind of transmission, that I can do through teaching, I can do through writing, I can do through making jewelry. They're different transmissions, but the transmission process is the same. And that's my function right now. It wasn't always my function, or if it was, I didn't know it. And if I'm doing that work, I'm having some very different effects on things. But until I kind of got my shit together enough to go, oh, I could do that. It would be okay for me to share this stuff. It would be okay for me to say, I do this crazy shit with jewelry, and I'm not going to try and sell you on the reality of it, but I'm going to certainly put it out there for those that it might be useful to and let them see it and see if they go, yes, that will work for me. You know, I've never understood trying to sell that idea. It's like people go, well, why should I do your magic the way that you talk about it? I go, I have no idea why you would do it the way that I talk about it. Right. How the fuck would I know that? I could tell you why I do it the way that I do it. And that seems to be helpful to a lot of people right now. So. Actually, one aspect of how you do magic that I wanted to make sure we covered is dirt sorcery. Could you, <laughs> could you like talk for something like, like for, for once again, the, these, I'm, I'm, I'm picturing like kids, like in a Christmas story, you know, listening to the little orphan Annie radio show or something like that, like up against <laughs> the it's just, you know, it's a, I'm sure these are just people sitting at their jobs or something, but like for the people sitting at their jobs or something, what is dirt sorcery, at least as you do it or as you conceive of it? <laughs> so there's two parts to that. And um, pretty early on, you know, within a few years of regular practice, I kind of decided that the material was the the most core thing in magic if you wanted to torque in the material that there had better be a concrete manifestation preferably that you made for the work that you want to do right that doing ritual talking into the air is really not going to cut it most of the time as far as i'm concerned uh or at least for me you know and so I was hanging around with a bunch of Thelemites and folks that were practicing Goetia and things like that. And uh, they would try and have these weird theoretical conversations about ceremonial magic with me. And I started just like telling people outright, like, I don't do that. I'm a total rocks and string kind of guy because that's how I work. (laughs) Um, uh, You know, if you look at my kind of altar space here, it is, it's bowls of dirt and it's, little bundles of shit tied up with strings. It's very kind of folk magic, traditional witchcrafty looking stuff. Though how I get there may be very different or my thinking about it may be different. And eventually this became kind of the joke answer was dirt sorcery. But the more time that I spend in, the more, as I said, that I have, you know, bowls of dirt that are particular workings going and uh, dirt is one of the prime elements that I work with because it's here. 
it's tangible, it's real, it's life. It's dead everything, yeah. right? If you are not, if you're doing necromancy and you aren't surrounded by dirt, I don't understand how you're doing it because that is what that shit is. This is decayed organisms, decayed mountains, decayed bones. It is why our food supply is so fucked up is because of depletion of nutrient within the soil, right? Which is happening because we don't let things die on the ground and then rot into it anymore. You know, we clean that shit up or we've eradicated so much of it that, you know, we're supposed to be walking on the dead everywhere we go. We're supposed to be walking in the shit everywhere we go. Not like, you know, fucking dark ages, Europe kind of shit in the streets, but if we're out in the world. And so to me, dirt sorcery is about that kind of direct connection to the body, to the magical body and to that kind of reality that life is this intersection between showing up here and leaving and that that's all for the good, right? Yeah. It's one of those really weird ones. We've got these kind of folks that now are like, oh, we could download consciousness. And I'm like, what the fuck are you talking about? That is the most asinine thing I can think of. It's like your consciousness is a byproduct of your body. Hell yeah. Not I'm saying old- you can't do some version of that thing, but it isn't what you think it is. It's like, yes, your spirit, I think, is a separate thing attached to different there's different you know i I buy into a kind of multi-soul model from having seen that in action Uh, but no our consciousness is a byproduct of the body and so it's this isn't your brain it's the whole thing it's your bones and it's the fact that you are filled with innumerable organisms that are co-creating your your physical reality you know we're filled with mitochondria and bacteria and little tiny mites running around in our eyes and that's how it's supposed to be yeah uh, you know so dirt sorcery it's just the way it is <laughs> in terms of like mechanics and getting getting into the weeds with this dirt sorcery like are you picking particular dirts from particular places for particular purposes or is it sort of like dirt because it has this all-encompassing all-containing nature that you just sort of you know you go out to the to the ground somewhere, you grab some dirt, and then like this is my dirt for this because I've decided. That Absolutely, I do. It's it's all of the above. I do you know kind of traditional cemetery stuff. If we were to look at kind of you know hoodoo kind of approaches to buying dirt from the cemetery and working with that kind of thing, I deal with a lot of crossroads dirt, and I think that there's a whole lot of different kinds of crossroads. I live out in the mountains and most of the roads out here are dirt. So I'm kind of surrounded by dirt crossroads. So you can kind of figure out which one is like what. And I think if I were to describe that, that I can work with any of it, but I think it's mostly about finding the places that kind of the, whatever the spirits of the dead in that land vibrate with me. And I'll just kind of go walking where there's dirt and go, this is what I want to do or this is where I'm trying to go, or this is my conception of this. And I'll kind of talk that out of out loud and in my head and kind of picture kind of what I want to do and something will show up and go, yeah, get it from here. And I do. And when you, when you work the dirt, are we talking about like, you know, you do a thing and the dirt is there and the dirt empowers the thing, or like, are you like really like trying to like channel through that dirt to what is in the dirt or what the dirt kind of. <laughs> um, yeah. Again, all of the above. Uh, so 
I'm, I'm staring at a bowl of dirt that has a bunch of candles burning in it and some other stuff going on in it right now and seeing if it has anything to add to this. I would say that you could play with it would be the best way to have that experience. And so, you know, my suggestion is to get a fireproof or an oven safe bowl, pretty good size, at least, you know, five or six inches across, preferably eight or 10 and go hunting dirt. And you can use dirts from multiple places, if that makes sense to you, and add them together. And stick that thing in the center of your altar and start burning candles in the dirt itself. So you want to use something small, like chime candles, because dirt and wax can become wicks depending on how it's constructed. So you don't want to have a big fire. Um, And begin interacting with it, seeing what happens. If you make offerings to the dirt, if you ask the dirt, to assist with things, if you use that dirt that you are burning candles in and making offerings to and kind of communing to as this, both as kind of this earth element, but also as this fertility given to us through death and decay, right? The function of time on organic matter. Begin using that dirt to dress candles with. Mm talking to it and saying, this is what I want this candle to do. And then taking a pinch of that dirt and using it like you would herbs or with herbs or whatever else to dress candles with or to add to packet work or charm work. And I think, you know, for the folks that that resonates with, they're going to find the their approach to it. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm very hands-on with the dirt. Part of it is I have a really strong, deep history sense in that I really see the last essentially like the Neolithic, as this total human aberration. And I don't know, necessarily think it was a positive one. And so I think that we're really supposed to be in the dirt in a way that most of us aren't, even though I live out in a big plot of dirt in New Mexico and in probably more in the dirt than a lot of people are, uh, you know, other than the folks that seriously garden and farm and stuff or are seriously outdoors folks. Most of us don't really have, have contact with the earth in that way. And doing that process, even if we're in the city and we have to go out to a park or something to find the dirt and bring it in, to me, it begins this connection that is very deep to those kind of super deep line ancestral spirits that don't give a shit about what's going on in the modern world. It doesn't make sense to them because it doesn't make sense, you know. But, yeah, there's a lot of power in there. Do you see a connection between the dirt and the talismanic work you're doing? Like, are talismans just, is silver just a fancy kind of dirt? (laughs) I think that that's true. Yes, uh, I would absolutely say that. And I think that it is. It's like there's something really, there's something about kind of building something that is kind of like a, like I I was thinking about this. So, I've you know, I've built a thousand or two thousand talismans. And it's really interesting to go, okay, so I actually have generated this strange body of magic that is going to outlast me by probably millennia, right? Whether these things just get lost or whether they get tossed or into the landfill, nothing's really going to happen to them (laughs) for an insane period of time. Uh, And what an odd kind of sense of things that is, you know? Actually, how long does it take you usually to make one of these? Uh, when I was doing uh, the the last batches that I was doing, which were all two-sided, I could manage 12 pieces a month, and that's working every day. So for, like, for scale, we're talking about like three or four days, and then it just lasts for thousands of years. 
<laughs> quite possibly yeah you know it's one of the coolest things that i got in the last couple of years was i came across a very old greek coin and looking at that thing which was you know some kind of like uh and so it's worn down and you go oh these things that i've made that are got an you know i've got a full millimeter or more relief on them they're going to be here for thousands of years uh unless they get melted down that's how weird is that <laughs> you know it's weird because it feels like every every day nowadays lasts several thousand years that just because i'm paying too much attention to politics on twitter but um it is nice to know that like the work of like a weekend like a weekend could survive you by 40 times your your natural lifespan um, it's pretty crazy it's pretty crazy i remember when that actually hit me and i was like that's very odd and again the allies were really clear about that when i kind of went into trance a couple of days later they were like yeah this is like a, a functioning organic network that these are little nodes of and that's what our interest in them is <laughs> like oh okay that makes sense to me we've been talking for quite a while and i don't want to keep you too much longer because I, I i hate being uh, greedy with people's time but actually i don't hate it that i mean it's, I think being greedy with other people's time is one of my better traits, actually. I'm going to say I that. Think you, and, you're, and, and you're good. I'm good for another 20 or 30 minutes if you need. Okay. Well, one of the things I definitely want to I, I want to bring up, and then maybe maybe we can cap it off there, is showing sigils. Because I, I – it's funny because when I – so when I started off with magic, I – like my first book was Peter J. Carroll's Lieber Nolan's Psychonaut. Mm-hmm. And his methodology – for charging sigils and the one that i sort of came across to get to that book which was grant morrison's you know you either you either masturbate or you bungee jump with the sigil on your chest and you get really scared or you you know you spend a night in a graveyard and you, you, you think about this right about terror or something like that like those are sort of the versions that i i think are very prevalent but like with showing sigils it seems like a much more contemplative way of charging them and i was wondering if you could sort of take us through the idea of showing sigils and how you sort of work with sigils. Right. So that's one, you know, so showing sigils, if anybody wants to kind of go to the root of that, I'm not going to try to talk too much on it because it, it all comes from Gordon White. And if oh. you search his rune soup site for shoal, you will find it. Uh, and there's a lot of good stuff in there. And he's where I learned to show sigils. I was doing a version of it that I still do, but it kind of totally clarified the process. And so all that it really is, is it's doing a bunch of sigils at the same time and processing them at the same time. So with the intention that they kind of will support each other to manifest together, right? I was definitely, you know, I, Carol was the first kind of magic book that totally made sense to me. Yeah. Though I think I interpreted it entirely wrong um, from what his intention was. But uh and so, yeah, totally. I came from that, you know, masturbation and blood magic for sigils is how I did it. Just bleeding on them. Knock it too hard. I mean, like, you know, it works. It's, it's fun. I mean, yes, and it also works. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, what I kind of got was I, I, I attached to the showing of sigils concept that Gordon had because I'd already realized that rather than trying to forget what a single sigil was about, it was way easier to kind of process. 10 or 20 statements of intent that I wanted to sigilize down to where it was just broken up the last few letters and keep those somewhere. And then when I wanted to do sigils, I would just do a few of them. So you never know what you're doing. 
your sigil for. And that's kind of the beauty of that process to me is if you do it kind of quickly, at least on the early stages, you don't know what the individual sigils are for. You just know that at one point it made sense for you to make them. Yeah. And so you make them and you do them. And for me, I trance out on my sigils. I just do I do them. Uh, and as much as possible, I like to just zone into the process, kind of like I do jewelry, which is I just want it to be alive. I don't really care what it looks like as long as it seems alive. And at that point that I have a sense of it being alive, to me, it's done. It's like, because that's what matters. And there's tons of stuff you can do to make sigils more effective. But that basic approach is just a game changer because then it's not a big deal, right? And that to me is a, a large piece of it, is a lot of magic. The theory behind it is we're doing all of this work to make it be a really big deal, right? Yeah. To create this kind of really superlative moment. And instead, if the process itself is kind of a special one because to me that's what consecration is is it's making something special that can be really laid back you don't need to be hyped up about it it doesn't need to be a five-hour process sometimes it might want to be a five-hour process sometimes right. it might want to be a five-month process right but still there's not this and this i think comes from you know jan freeze who is kind of my my kind of he's the person that brought me to how i practice i would say was his book Visual Magic and his book Sideways. And he really talks about like kind of take it easy and just space out and don't get cramped up. And that was a lot of what I saw working with other magicians is that they were super uptight about every piece going exactly right. So if you try and light the candle and instead you burn your thumb, you have this whole shit fit and you go, well, what the fuck does that bring to this? Just light yeah. another match, you know? And so to me, that's kind of the beauty of shulling sigils is it allows most people to ease up that process a lot. Mm, that sounds really healthy. Or maybe healthy is the wrong. I feel like I'm, I'm putting like a normative stance on that. That just sounds like a chill time, which is nice in an unchill world. <laughs> this is like one of my main drivers, right? It's like, how do you do, how do you make your magic non-stressful? Yeah. Because stress isn't going to help, right? There's, if there's... There's particular kinds of stress that can help, but those are very fleeting. Yeah. So actually, okay, two things before we get out, and then I feel like we're we because this has been such a lovely interview. Like this has just been <laughs> like a filled out joy. So one of them is uh, so somebody else I talked to when I when I mentioned you know that I was going to be interviewing you and like you know trying to be like a resource for folks was I don't know if you if you know her but uh, Melissa uh, Madara from from Catman Books, which is a sort of magical bookstore mm -hmm. here. In and something that she said that actually was really interesting because um because it's sort of a problem that i run into too which is you know if someone comes to you and they're 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 at the, the exact zero like sea level of doing witchcraft and they say like where do i start where do i even begin with any of this like i think six ways is a great answer to that question in fact i think that's the one melissa often points people to uh when they come to the shop and like i don't know where to start where do i start where do you like where would you point people toward is just like a first step like here's here's null point null for you on doing this is it is it a book or would you point to like a particular practice or like where i mean yeah it's pretty that's a that's a really good question and it's it tends to be really specific to who the person is i think anybody everybody functionally needs if you just want to be functional 
<laughs> this is which is kind of step one to being a functional magician, right? <laughs> you want to be yeah. functional. I would say is meditation. Hmm. Because especially in the way that the world is right now, you got to find that gap, right? You got to find that space to go, okay, I'm getting bombarded from all sides, internal and external, with just garbage. And a very, very, very small amount of that might actually be relevant to me. Yeah. And so getting that gap so that you can see that is huge. And then, yeah, I mean, to me, I think Six Ways I, I was written for that purpose. I think Visual Magic is one of the most brilliant books ever written by Jan Fries. And I think if people are looking for more, neither me nor Jan Fries are particularly kind of, we're not super, we don't hold a hand, yeah. right? It's like, this is this is things you should do <laughs> or, and experiment with and see what happens, right? Yeah. Uh, my friend Bree Saucy has a really beautiful book called Making Magic, which is really set up as kind of a workbook of just very effective, very simple, very kind of kitchen witchy folk magic approaches. And I think that that's one of, you know, if you know that you want more guidance, that's the book that I send people to now. But I think it's, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's so dependent on the person. But to me, it's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting one. I would, if I was to go really simple, I would go meditation, sigil magic, and an offering practice. Start like, making offerings to your allies and be really clear about who gets them. So my language is always, you know, I offer water fire and smoke to the allies who aid and guard me and that's to me that language is very important because i'm not interested in feeding just everyone yeah and not all of the you know that somebody asked recently the different uh chowan ku on her excellent which is in wine podcast we did she said you know what's the difference between the others and the allies the allies always have your back the others don't always have your back. Not all of the kind of spiritual spirit agencies out there have your back. And yeah. again, this is where meditation is really helpful because it allows you to see if you're going off the rails and then you can maybe see if that's you or if that's something else, you know, and especially now, I mean, we're just in overstimulation hell and, uh, you know, coming up with a way to be kind of still and quiet for 20 minutes or a half hour every day is quite possibly more important than anything you could do with magic for most people. Yeah. Actually, just to like get into, because, you know, granular things all the time. The smoke mm -hmm. that you, are we talking incense or are we talking yes. like, okay, cool. Yep. I, I, yeah. So like I, I generally offer Palo Santo and just stick incense and water and a candle as my base offering. And that's the, that's to the allies pretty much every day. Mm. But, you know, you don't have to freak out about it. Like I incredibly sick for two weeks and they didn't get shit because they don't mind they're like okay you're back that's good yeah i mean you're building relationships yep and that's um, the yeah i mean to me that's the biggest thing is like realizing that this is like a slow process for most people yeah uh it certainly was for me it took a lot of years before i started getting anything like consistent results and i think it took a lot of years before it took a lot more years before i started asking good questions <laughs> what is it like it was so we tend to go or at least i do and most of the people that i know go the questions are is how do right oh, uh, or how how do you 
get? And then it kind of went silent. Oh, so the usual questions that people go is, they, is they'll go to the tarot or to whatever they do for divination or to, and to say, how do I get the thing that I want? Mm. Right? That usually to me is like a really odd question to ask unless you've also said, why do I want the thing that I want? Mm, yeah. And does my wanting the thing that I want have merit? Mm. And so there's this whole kind of questioning process that I think people could really dive into and bring it to your allies and bring it to your spirits and do sigils about it and do candle magic about it. Like what are the things that actually would get me to the state that I want to be in in my life? that currently is being represented by this thing that I want, right? But is that just a presentation of something? This is uh, one of the things I'm working on with the, the folks that are doing the class with me right now is, is viewing the kind of process of desire and of wanting things as an attempt to learn a new language, right? Mm. Because we used to be in incredibly simple life situations, right? What we wanted was food and water and for our children not all to die for some of them to live and very basic things right yeah but we've kind of entered this insanely complicated world where we might seem like we want a particular career or it may seem like we want a particular kind of collection of items you know or wealth or something in our life but all of that is programmed right all of that is cultural indoctrination layers upon layers upon layers unless we do something to go like okay maybe i really do want to be rich but why mm, what yeah. is that what is that going to give me what is that going to allow me to do is that real or do i think that the person i would be in that situation is different in some way right yeah. And then this kind of carries on in so if we realize that our desires may be kind of masks for what I would say are kind of real desires, real wants, you know, real deep wants, we may hit really interesting places. Like I realized like I hit a place with my magical work that it was really important to me to do a bunch of stuff, right? And this was making the talismans and everything. And eventually I realized like there's a particular transmission that's happening when I work that I want to share. And that is what's important to me about writing or teaching or doing jewelry. It's helpful if I can make a living at it, right? Yeah. Because then I have more time to do that. <laughs> um, but that's not the the root thing. So there's kind of two streams going on, right? And they're not necessarily always going to be congruent, right? But that kind of, again, I have this kind of thing that me and the allies are like, no, we've got this transmission that we're trying to do because it seems to be of service. You know, I get very constant feedback from people going, this is doing stuff that I needed, <laughs> I needed done. Uh, and it's showing me ways to do stuff that I need to have ways to do without a lot of dogma and a, a lot of um, kind of set in stone rules behind it and scripted ways to believe or to explain what's happening. But again, that was not obvious at all up front, right? I had to really kind of go, what's going on here? Because otherwise I could have just gone, oh, okay, I'm just going to do, you know, platinum wedding rings and make a ton of money and be horribly unhappy. <laughs> you 
know? And so I think that, yeah, if we can kind of really dive into that questioning process and go, is this me? Is this my mom's desire? Mm. You know, there are, we have, you know, untold thousands and thousands and thousands of ancestors. And if you accept that the ancestors have influence, are these ancestral desires that are maybe not relevant anymore? Like, I think that that's the biggest thing that we have going on in the world right now is we have this ancestral desire for our children to live from a time when that didn't happen, but it hasn't gone anywhere. And so now we are just cranking people into this very limited space. And it's like, how do you adapt to something that is, you know, maybe, you know, 500,000 or a million year old impulse? That's this rider wave saying, no, you've got to make more babies so that we survive. Okay, well, we're making so many babies, we probably won't survive, right? Um, and not everybody's going to agree with me on that interpretation, but, and that's fine. But again, we have to do this on a personal level and go, do you know, was I trained? Was I raised to think that I want this thing? Is this actually a source of happiness or joy or satisfaction for me? Do I care about balance, right? Maybe I just want to do really extreme stuff and maybe it'll kill me, right? Yeah. We think about a lot of kind of adventurous folks. You go, that's a different impulse. That's not a balanced impulse, but that's perfectly fine if that's the real driver. So to me, yeah, it's like the questions are the, the questions are the key. And again, like what's the way to get there? Meditation. <laughs> Thinking about what you want. So, and then asking for it, seeing what happens. Totally cool for you to ask for something and get it and go, oh fuck, I didn't want that. I thought I wanted that. Sometimes that's the only way we can learn that. And so to me, that's the beauty of sigil magic is it's very easy, it's very fast. And if you kind of get the, get the hang of it, it tends to be freakishly effective. And so, yeah, you can become, yeah, I mean, it, it just opens up that whole field of, of, of becoming more aware of who you are and what your actual desires might be. That's really, gosh, that's really fundamental. I'm really glad you said that. This has been fabulous i thank you so much for being on if people well, thank you for having me if people <laughs> want to find you and learn more about your work i mean six ways very obvious anywhere else they should be looking or peeking around my website is aidenwalker.com and that links to my blog it has photos of the jewelry there are a few pieces in the shop but those will be the last for a year or two and i'm on generally uh i'm on twitter and facebook and instagram and there is a six ways uh group on facebook that is a great place for people who are interested in kind of playing in this stuff and that's generally where i actually talk magic the rest of the places i'm sharing dog pictures i mean that's that's and, uh, good though i mean dogs are a great solace in a terrible world absolutely absolutely actually some if we may do some rapid fire questions super quickly totally which plant is your favorite and why? My favorite plant is any of the Deturas, preferably the, the Rite or the Jimson weed, because that's the first plant ally that explained it to me that it would be happy to kill me, but it could show me some shit if I survived it. And I've loved that thing ever since. Yeah. What did, what did, not to completely derail my rapid fire question thing, but what did you <laughs> Um, it showed me that reality, at least as I perceived it, was completely a fabrication. That it could show me anything, and I would accept it as true. Oh, uh, and so I went, oh, well, for 
a week, I thought the world was like this. And now I don't see that anymore. But I could have quite easily killed myself during that time period or, you know, on accident, most likely. <laughs> but, yeah. yeah, that was like, a, yeah, when I was 15, it showed me some things I didn't know were possible. Again, especially as a non-hallucinator. So mm-hmm. I had no reason, having done a lot of acid at that point without much visual, to think that I could be 100% in an immersive reality that was not what was actually going on physically. Wait, what were my other rapid-fire questions? Did I? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you have a favorite grimoire? Um, I'm not really a grimoire guy. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I'm not really a grimoire guy. Um, we don't get along. That's fair. <laughs> I really, uh, vibe well with like super dogmatic kind of stuff. Um, okay, it's uh, it's it's a day you've been working. You're exhausted. You come home. You have to cook something. What do you cook? This is more about my reality. We eat essentially the same thing every day with a few variations and so it's either going to be chicken and rice or some other variety of chicken and rice and if it's not chicken rice it might occasionally be some beef and rice (laughs) okay metallica or guar oh man uh neither the obsessed Ooh. okay fun i'm i'm 100 percent a a doom sludge guy love it as far as the metal goes how do you feel so this might be a bit off the field for us, but how do you feel about things like, say, Electric Wizard or Sleep or Sasquatch, that whole sort of area? I love Sleep. I love Ohm more than I love Sleep, but I love Sleep. Electric Wizard is a 50-50. Some of their stuff I really like. Like, I've been listening to Black Masses a lot. Yeah. Uh, I really like that one. Yeah, I, uh, I run through a lot of that stuff. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Yeah, I love all of Wino's stuff, but especially the Obsessed and Spirit Caravan. That's kind of my perfect music. And uh, yeah, a lot of, uh, yeah, we could, we could go down that rabbit hole for a long time. <laughs> but yeah, we probably shouldn't. Uh, it would be fun. Though, actually, I feel like I, I have a responsibility to a friend of mine to ask this. Weed eater, yes or no? I'm not really a weed eater fan. Okay. I have I have tried to be a weed eater fan, but it has never really worked for me. You know, you gave it a shot, and that's all I did give it a shot. There was a band from New Orleans called Weed Eater that is not the same Weed Eater that predates that Weed Eater by quite a bit of time. That was quite good, though. The other Weed Eater. Other Weed Eater. (laughs) I can't believe it's not Weed Eater. Okay, this has been an absolute joy. I think I'm out of rapid fire questions, uh, (laughs) probably for the best. Thank you so much for coming on. This has been great. And, uh, you know, just a joy for me and, and hopefully a joy for everyone who is, again, in my mind, putting their ear up against a 1930s radio and trying to listen. To <laughs> Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. It was really fun. And I greatly appreciate you having me. Thank you so much to Aiden Walker. That was really a joy. Uh, I will put links to his various sources in the description of the show. And that's been Witch Hassle. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us, and I'll see you next time. Good luck with the work ahead. Mm -hmm.